to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens, a policy analyst at the Institute for Energy Research. And I'm Jordan McGillis, also at IER. Today, we're going to be discussing carbon taxes with our guest and colleague, Robert Murphy. Dr. Murphy is a research assistant professor at the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University, a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and our senior economist at the Institute for Energy Research. Dr. Murphy is also the co-host of the popular Contra Krugman podcast and the author of several books, including most recently, Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action. Dr. Murphy, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Dr. Murphy, why don't you give us just like a short one-minute explanation of what the point, what the purpose of carbon taxes are, and what uh, the proponents of this policy hope to gain by it? Well, sure. So, I mean, the the cynical explanation, of course, would be to say, oh, people who are pushing this, at least some of them, want more revenue for the government. They want to have more control over the energy sector, but. The ostensible purpose, the justification given, and I'm sure what many of the rank-and-file advocates of it believe, is, of course, it relates to the issue of climate change. So there the idea is the uh, you know, the, the textbook version and, and justification would run like this, saying, yeah, normally the market economy is fine in terms of aligning incentives properly to get people to do the optimal thing, but there's what's called negative externalities where uh, someone who makes decisions is not receiving uh, the the full information or feedback is not bearing the full cost of what their actions are imposing on others because the price system has some sort of failure in, embedded in it. And that's the case, they would say, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. And so if it's true that emitting another ton of carbon dioxide, for example, is going to lead to climate change that over the next few centuries on net is going to impose damages on people who have nothing to do with that transaction, right? So it's not a matter of you're interacting with somebody and you're gonna cut a deal with the person monetarily. It's just a matter of these other people who have nothing to do with that transaction that that resulted in more emissions. Uh, They advocate a tax to to try to align the incentives properly. And so if it's properly calibrated, at least in theory, the idea is that a carbon tax can uh, cause people to fully take into account the full ben- uh, the full benefits and costs of their actions. So it's not the, the goal is not to just completely eliminate carbon dioxide emissions or other greenhouse gas emissions. The you know the more economically trained uh, or literate advocates of a carbon tax will say no. This is just it's just giving it's supplementing or augmenting the price system to make sure that people are are receiving the right feedback. And so that when they make their new decisions in light of the carbon tax now they're fully taking into account all the range of their activities and the impacts. And so then that will lead people to, in their own self-interest, make decisions that are socially optimal. So that's that's the idea. Yeah, we've staked out our our position at IER against the carbon tax fairly clearly, as have our our fellow travelers at Cato and and Heritage. Uh, One thing I think we could do better, and I think you did it well there, is step into that mindset of the the pro-carbon tax uh, position really explore um, what is valid about the position, uh, and then and then see what's not valid. So, Bob, I would ask you if I step into that role, uh, if we do simply add a small price uh, to what is currently the price of of fossil fuels, essentially, um, we move the cost curve 
slightly, and can we not thereby eliminate um, that negative surplus or that negative externality as it as it's described? What is what's wrong with that theoretical framework? Okay, sure. So there's a, a lot wrong with it, I would argue, and so I'll. Uh... In the interest of, of brevity, and so as not to have this, you know, turn into a monologue, I'll, I'll just highlight some of the key things. That maybe as this discussion unfolds, you guys can lead me in the direction you think is best for the listeners sure. to elaborate. Uh, so, so for one thing is, obviously, I'm an economist, and so I am not qualified to uh, question, you know, what, what's considered to be the the, the scientific conclusions regarding. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the possible effect on the climate. All right. So for our discussion here, I'm going to confine myself just to saying the economics. Of course, as as we all know, there are some uh, very prominent, you know, full-fledged climate economists who have credentials. You know, John Christie, you know, awards from NASA and so forth, who would be, uh, you know, very much in the lukewarmer camp, saying that this really isn't going to be, you know, a catastrophic problem one way or the other. But let me just so say for the, the rest of this podcast, I am going to be stipulating for the sake of argument the standard um, relationships that are alleged to exist between human emissions of greenhouse gases and then you know the, the possible impacts. Yeah, and so, I, would, I would say there that um, there is that, that separate discussion to have regarding the science, but uh, if we do just take the, the, the mainstream scientific position as given, it really creates some interesting questions, and, and let's just work from there. Right, yeah, exactly. So, again, I'm just here focusing on the economics of it. Uh, it's, it's the, even on its own terms, it's not at all obvious that this is you know, some, some huge looming threat that requires drastic political action, let alone like that's the defining issue of our time. You know, it's often been, for example, Paul Krugman and some of his columns went back during the election, you know, between uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton, w- was saying that the fate of the planet is literally at stake here. Okay, so what I'm saying is no, I mean, that sort of rhetoric, I, mean, I think people kind of know that's exaggeration anywhere, hyperbole, but that stuff you hear all the time in this debate, and I'm saying that no, even on its own terms, that's not true. Using uh, one of my m- most most cited IER blog posts on this, I use the latest issue of the uh, IPCC's uh, periodic reports to just show using their own numbers, you know, the, the various studies that they included that were looking at the damage assessments and the, the likely impact of aggressive climate mitigation policy, mean, meaning, you know, government policies that are supposed to uh, slow down uh, greenhouse gas emissions relative to what would happen under just, you know, business as usual, as they call it. And certainly by the year 2050, again, using their own numbers with middle-of-the-road projections about what's the Earth's sensitivity to greenhouse gas emissions and where the damage is going to likely be, blah, 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 that sort of thing. It, was, it wasn't even close where the cost, the economic compliance cost of these measures that governments might implement would be bigger than the uh, avoided climate change damages. And then by the year 2100, it was closer, but still, again, using the best numbers you could piece together from this IPCC report, it looked like you could make a pretty strong case showing that now nah, probably these measures will cost more than the alleged you know pr- problem that they might solve. So I, so that I, I just wanted to okay. stress that that again using their own numbers, um, it's not at all clear that the, the one is that it actually is doing something good for you. Uh, beyond that, let me just mention 
uh, two, two other points here. One is the fact that w throughout all of this, you can get just about any answer you want by, set, by changing what the discount rate is. And so what that is saying is it's the, the way we compare future damages to present costs. Or, you know, in other words, if, if let's say we just for the sake of argument, we were certain that we trust, you know, we had a particular computer simulation that told, showed us if you emit one more ton of CO2 in the year 2020, this is how much net damage it's going to cause to humans over the next few centuries, you know, and you had it broken down by year. So you knew that, oh, yeah, in the year 2218, there's going to be an extra $640 of climate change damage because of this. That by itself doesn't tell us what we should do right now. It doesn't tell us what the optimal carbon tax is or anything like that. Because we need to know, okay, well, how do we judge damages of whatever, $618 or whatever number I said there in the year 2218 compared to right now? Because we're going to impose costs on ourselves now that the economy won't grow as quickly if we you know, limit our ability to use uh, carbon-rich fuels and so forth in order to make our great-great-grandkids better off. Sure. And, and so that's, Yeah, so that, that, that has nothing to do with so, – so science, physicists and chemists – can't tell us what that answer is. That's not, you know, something that's due to natural science. And and just to give you an idea of, the, of how big a factor that is, for example, the the most the August 2016 update of the social cost of carbon that the Obama administration issued, the 22, you know, for the, the social cost of carbon for the year 2020, at a three percent discount rate, which is kind of the rate that the media used in their headline figures, was forty two dollars a ton. Whereas if you used a five percent discount rate, it dropped to twelve dollars a ton. So you can see there that that has nothing to do with deniers or like which which scientists are you listening to and so forth. That's just a simple matter of everything else is held the same. And all we're saying is if you discounted the future at a 5% rate, which is entirely reasonable, all of a sudden the social cost of carbon drops to $12 a ton, which is not a very big number. And so you can just see how big of an impact that has. So, uh, mm. so it's, it's – when you as you start bringing more and more of these things, and another thing is the tax interaction effect that maybe at some point in this conversation we can come back to. It's just showing you that even on their own terms, it's it, it starts to turn into a knife edge result where yes, the government would have to do everything textbook for the next hundred years, and if you had any slippage or the government ever you know made the tax the wrong rate for revenue purposes or what have you, all of a sudden the the, the case for action disappears even on their own terms. Okay. We can circle back to the implementation challenges and, and the tax interaction effect, but I want to challenge you a couple of counterpoints here. Regarding the fluctuations in the social cost of carbon that we see at different discount rates, um, what I can't help but notice that is that even at the higher discount rates, the 7% discount rate, um, which is valuing the present a lot more than future, we're still seeing a positive social cost of carbon, however small it may be, uh, beyond the middle of this this century. Um, so it's easy to, when we see those numbers and those fluctuations based on the discount rate, it's easy to dismiss the hysterical um, anti-growth, anti-capitalism positions of you know your Naomi Klein's and your David Roberts. But why why is it why can you dismiss or why do you dismiss as well the more modest pro-carbon tax position, which is that there's a small social cost of carbon. It may be even just a few dollars here in, in 2018. And can we not uh, account for that? It doesn't need to be an economy shocking um, 
situation when we implement this this small modest tax? Okay, sure. So great question. Uh, a few points here. Again, I'll I'll try to keep my answers uh, on the shorter side just to allow us to cover more territory here. So one thing is. Again, and I know we're going to defer this perhaps until a bit later in the, in the discussion, but the, with the tax interaction effect, if the, quote, true social cost of carbon really is, let's say, $15 a ton or less, then once you bring in the considerations of, of the other distortions in the tax code, actually, then all of a sudden, the, the quote, optimal carbon tax really could be zero. Right? And so that, again, not, not that we're building in assumptions about political actors doing things that are not correct according to the guys in the white lab coats. But we're just saying even literally textbook on its own terms, this other factor that the, the distortionary tax code, you add a carbon tax on top of it. you. In other words, you would need a very big negative externality in order for a carbon tax to survive this new consideration, this new wrinkle. So that's one element. Uh, beyond that, like, even these these uh, calculations, of course, are based on models that I think typically the people publishing in this field do have, you know, a, a concern to include things that are, are negative and to exclude things that are positive. All right. And so we, can, we you, have to uh, work... can you dig in on that a little more and talk sure. to us about uh, what exactly are these so-called damages when we're looking at 2118, 2218? What is factored into um, those models on the economic side when, again, taking the the climate positions for granted, what are the economic effects that we're talking about in the future? Well, sure. So And so here, if people want to see more details, um, I have a journal article called Rolling the Dice, and if and that's a reference to uh, Nordhaus's dice model. So if you, you know, Google my name in that title, you can find it and get some more of these specifics. And, the, the, you know, the models are different, and obviously over time they include more and more things. But again, just to just to uh, caution people about how much do we know about this stuff? We are having they're building computer simulations of the Earth, you know, the climate system and the global economy over the next 300 years. Okay, so the, you know this that really should show people just how uncertain these things are, and and then that's why you know when you come up with these precision and say ah in the year 2100 GDP is going to be five percentage points lower. I mean, it's kind of absurd to be talking like that. And yet that's, you know, that's the position we're in with this debate. So there is all that element, but it's, it's various things. I mean, they include all sorts of stuff. Like if, you know, if there's sea level rises and that gets enhanced because of more warming than other areas right now that are low lying, you know, can be vulnerable. And certainly if they're not allowed to adapt as well in that there could be changes in crop yields. And so, by the way, this is one of the reasons that earlier models tended to have very large impacts and then as you know refinements came along in some of the some of those strands of literature they realized oh wait a minute maybe it won't be as bad so for example you know they, they could just look at uh what sort of crops you know grow in certain climates and then oh gee if it gets warmer they would say oh well, you know, these farmers are going to be devastated and in some of these earlier models they didn't give the farmers the option to change what they planted Okay, and so they, obviously, if you allow for that sort of adaptation, then the impacts are not nearly as severe. Um, other things like, oh, if it gets warmer, then uh, you know more people could die from heat death in the summer, and then you would want to say, well, wait a minute, though. Correspondingly, doesn't that mean fewer elderly people are going to die from the cold, you know, in the winters? So, so things like that. So there's a, all sorts of things you can put in there. The other problem 
Um, and again, I get into this more in that, that paper, Rolling the Dice. If you dig into Nordhaus's model, at least as of you know when I wrote that paper, to come up with some of these you know uh, these facts about would you how bad will things be? It's the reason this is a difficult area. What you know whether you're for a carbon tax or against it is the problem is it's not like there's just little incremental changes and if it gets warmer and warmer the damages go up in a nice linear or proportional fashion. It's more like up to a certain point maybe nothing really bad will happen but then if we go past this tipping point all of a sudden you know ice sheets collapse and these these real catastrophic things happen and so that's partly what goes on in these models it's it's more like the future scenarios are either not so bad at all or they're really bad and then when you average them together they're coming up with this composite you know figure for what's what's the impact on gdp going to be so it's i mean it's it, they include in principle all sorts of things like you know, it, everything you can imagine in terms of effects on mortality agricultural yields uh, all sorts of things that um, you know the spread of different types of uh, insect borne diseases and all sorts of things you know the, these models have different things going into them and that's that's sort of what i'm saying i mean the, the enterprise of what we're trying to do here to model the entire climate system and global economy for the next few centuries you can see how open-ended that is sure um and sticking with the discount rate then um even if you grant then the that the modeling might not take into account a lot of the things that you just discussed um how would you respond to like the insurance argument this is essentially that the risks associated with climate change could be much worse than our models and stuff are predicting um, basically the, the, the fat tail argument that uh, we might be wrong even with the models, but there's still a risk. Um, so therefore we should institute a carbon tax. Um, how do you respond to that sort of, uh, that sort of argument? Okay, sure. Great question. So one thing, one more thing about on the discount rate, just before I forget to mention it sure. is what bothers me more than the particular choice of the discount rate, so the fact that you know the media tend to highlight the figures for the three percent rate, as opposed to like the five percent or the two point five percent on the other end, that, that the particular choice doesn't bother me. So what bothers me is that I'm quite certain that a th- you know, if you asked a thousand regular Americans how critical is the discount rate when it comes to the pronouncements about the you know the the impact of the damage of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm sure 950 of them at least wouldn't even know what you were talking about. Okay, and so the fact that just by varying the discount rate and holding all of the natural science relationships constant, and even the estimates of what the impact will be you know, on human welfare going forward, keeping all that constant and just changing, well, gee, how do we trade off the costs imposed today in order to reduce climate damages in the future, just by changing the way we assess, you know, put those on a on a common denominator, could make the difference between, wow, we have to take drastic action versus, eh, actually, it's about a wash, whether we do something or not. I think most people would have no idea that they've been led to believe that this is, hey, the settled science, and this is just a simple matter of, of chemistry, and, you know, geez, you know how greenhouses work. How could anybody be denying this? And right, that, for the... pointing out, yeah, that, that, no, it's, people have no idea that this is actually, the entire debate could rest just on this choice of the discount rate. Right, for the, uh, for, the average, no idea. for the average American, it's, there's not that consideration at all. It's it's more a fear that me driving my car in Chicago is directly fueling a forest fire in California going on right now, almost. Yeah, it, right. Exactly. Yeah, and, and and when, as we know, that the standard you know things 
are, are much more agnostic about that in terms of, geez, how can we? So, so anyway, so back to your uh, your guys' good question before about insurance. So let me just note, first of all, how the, the landscape or the, or the rhetoric has evolved there and the goalposts have been moved. It certainly was not the case, let's say, 15 years ago that everybody was going around who was pro you know, massive government intervention in the name of slowing or mitigating climate change. And they were saying, yeah, it is true that with standard middle of the road estimates, probably these measures like a carbon tax or other you know, direct command and control techniques probably will make us poorer in the long run. And our grandkids will probably say, you know, guys, actually, we would have preferred if you did nothing and we just inherited more wealth and dealt with a slightly warmer globe. But, you know, there's a chance of this small uh, catastrophe. And so let's go ahead and and, and and pay this, you know, cost right now, even though probably won't need it. It's kind of like fire insurance that, yeah, probably your house won't burn down. And so, we'll, you know, looking back later on, you'll think I could have saved money by not having fire insurance, but it's more peace of mind. That is not at all the argument that was being given. Okay. The, the argument was, this is clear cut science. We're in serious danger imminently. If we don't take immediate action, we can see the effects all around us with tsunamis and forest fires and da 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 da. And so, like I was saying, as uh, people who are critics of these sorts of policies have been looking into the literature more and reporting and saying, wait a minute, the IPCC doesn't support that. Look at what these numbers actually say. And so, like I say, I think that the the pro carbon tax position has morphed over time to well, better safe than sorry. It's precautionary principle. So I'm just mentioning that that. This was not the argument of the justification that was given originally. It's only in response to people like me and others pointing out, wait a minute, your own models don't justify these measures you're suggesting. What are you talking about? That they've changed it to, well, yeah, sure, probably in general this thing will cost more than it's going to help us, but there's this small probability. Okay, so but besides that, just saying something is insurance, that doesn't settle the story. The specifics matter. And as I show, uh, you know, I have an IER blog post or several of them on this category people just google you know robert murphy insurance climate change yeah we'll make sure that we yeah. we'll make sure we include it in the, in the show notes so okay great yeah and just looking through the numbers it doesn't follow so it would be here i'm, I'm paraphrasing but it would be in the spirit of something like someone comes up to you and says hey do you want to spend three percent of your income every year paying for fire insurance because it's possible your house is going to you know, you have a mild fire in it that's going to cause damages of about 20% of your income within the next 30 or 40 years. How do you feel about that? If that were the proposal, that you're paying like 3% of your income to insure against a scenario where maybe you get damaged, not for your whole house burning down, but just like maybe 20% of your income worth of damages that probably won't occur until the next 20 or 30 years, that would be a horrible problem. You would say, no, I'm not going to do that. And so what I'm saying is, yes, under you would have to again using the IPCC's latest uh, report, you would have to pick the most extreme scenarios to even come close to if you run the numbers and try to come up with an analogy to say. So again, it's not just saying, oh, it's like getting an insurance policy. You don't just buy any insurance policy someone offers you. You look at the numbers and you figure out what's the risk and and so forth. And if it was if they were charging you way more than what made actuarial sense, you would say, no, that's a, that's an overpriced policy or that, that's that's not worth it. So I'm saying if you actually look at the numbers, then no, even if you are thinking of it like an insurance policy, you would never in your private life buy an insurance policy analogous to what these climate mitigation policies are. 
What I find interesting on this insurance point is that actual market insurance for property is a, is a fairly reasonable reaction somebody might might make uh, based on their concerns. If they live in a low-lying area, for example, um, or if they are a farmer, they can take those actions themselves. This doesn't need to be uh, a top-down orientation. Mar there actually is such a thing as real insurance, which can account for this. I mean, so, so that's a good point. And, and yes, you're certainly right that people aren't completely helpless and paralyzed in the face of this uh, alleged danger. I guess I will say, in fairness to the pro-intervention side, though, they would say, but yeah, that's but it, it would be more efficient from a social point of view if if their perspective were valid or correct that you would you know to to deal with it on the front end in, in other words it would be, it would be cheaper they would say to prevent the emissions in the or to reduce the emissions in the first place rather than letting them go uh you know mm -hmm. just full bore and then people having to deal with the consequences just like you know no matter what happens yeah people can get more air conditioning and and people can build more dams or whatever if the sea level rises, but they would say it, it might be cheaper to in the in the world of their model, given the options they're giving people in their model. Yes, they can point to and say, ah, see, we're saving money if we if we mitigate on the front. So I, I certainly agree with your point that this insurance, you know, insurance is allowed to operate whether or not government policy gets involved. But yeah, they, they would say, okay, that's that's a much inferior outcome to let's deal with the problem on the front end. On that adaptation point, uh, are those potential costs such as a much more widespread adoption of air conditioning or the, the change in what crops are growing or building a new seawall, are those costs incorporated into the integrated assessment models? I believe it's I'm on safe ground if I say more and more of those things have been brought in as the models have, you know, uh, been been worked on over time. Okay, so with any kind of field, you know, the early versions of things were very crude, and then people criticized them, or even you know, fans said, "Hey, next time you, you know, update this thing, why don't you include this effect?" So over time, yes, they've gotten much more sophisticated, and computers have gotten better too. You know, so obviously we can simulate things and have more calculations and have more variables involved on climate models, you know, IMs that are run today versus the early things that they did in the late 70s, for example, just because the, the hardware is so much more powerful. So, yeah, for example, Richard Toll, um, if you go and look at, you know, some of his description about what's in his model, the the fund model, um, he has a very, you know, a laundry list of, of things that they've included. And for each thing, he doesn't just make it up, you know, he'll go and look at the relevant literature to try to say, okay, well, what's you know, what's the impact of this? And so, with all these things, I hope people don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, oh, gee, I could build a better IAM. And for the listeners, that's an integrated assessment model. That that are these, these big models that uh, simulate the economy and the whole climate system. I'm not saying, oh, I could go build a better one. My point is just to say these things are limited, and so we shouldn't take walk away with this false sense of precision to think that we know what the temperature is going to be in the year 2100. We have no idea largely speaking, what the temperature is going to be. Just like, you know, people 200 years ago, if they were trying to guess where we'd be right now, they also would be way off just because, you know, things happen so much over time. It's hard to predict the future. But but to answer your question, yes, they do include those standard things about adaptation costs. And that's part of the re reason the, the the estimates of the damage vary so much. It's, it's hard to know. For example, uh, and this is kind of ironic, that the people who are many of the people who are very strongly in favor of aggressive government policy, the way they try to reassure 
normal people and voters that, hey, this isn't going to cost too much. It's not going to wreck the economy. Is they're going to say, look at all the strides that have been made in renewable energy sources. And so what's funny, though, is if, if, those, if they're right in their optimism, well, then in the models, if all of a sudden it, it becomes cheaper, forget it, you know, without consideration of carbon tax or other policy, if it just becomes a lot cheaper to generate electricity using wind and solar and car batteries become so much better that after a while people on their own just would prefer to have electric driven cars rather than gasoline powered ones, well, then there is no problem. You know what I mean? If in the simulation – rapidly the first world countries quickly decarbonize and then the other ones and they you know spillover effect such that by the year 2060 the earth is barely you know is is on net not not emitting very much well then you know there, there isn't going to be this catastrophe so that that's the irony with this that it's kind of hard to make the case that oh yeah the numbers are and the trends are just right such that modest government action right now will mean our grandkids are going to not be destroyed but if we but if we do nothing, they will be destroyed. But by the way, it won't be very painful if we do this. You know, what I mean, that's a very knife edge result. And right. so that's why. Yeah. So some people, just to be clear, like some guy like like Vox's David Roberts, you know, their their climate chief climate policy wonk. He is very pessimistic, but at least he's consistent. Like so the things like the Paris Agreement or whatever, he keeps saying this isn't going to be enough. We're all still screwed no matter what. If you know, these things are all half measures. So at least he's being consistent. It's guys like Krugman I have in mind with my criticism here who are telling people, oh, we just need these very light measures that aren't going to cause gasoline to get too much you know, more expensive. They're not going to cause your heating bill to go up much. But this thing is necessary or else our grandkids are you know, going to face catastrophe. So I'm saying that kind of position doesn't really work. Unless there's something else that we missed with the, uh, with the integrated assessment models and the discount rate, why don't we move to the, uh, the double dip? Well, maybe maybe yeah. one just last thing on that. Sure. We've written on this extensively, but for people who don't know about it, we should probably point them to um, Robert Pendykes of MIT, You know his scathing critique of those IAM models. So it's, uh, it's, and he's for a carbon tax, but his point was just to say, look at the shortcomings in these models and policymakers and the public need to – not think that we really understand this, you know, the way that we can predict where Mercury is going to be three months from now. You know what I mean? So sure. I think that's the problem is that the when you see these simulations or the, you know, these reports about, oh, you know, economists predict that the impact is going to be such and such by 2050. And they, they really take that seriously as if we know. And I, I think so Pindyke, again, coming from the other perspective. So, again, he's for a carbon tax, but his point is just to say. It's not because of these IAMs. These things, his phrase was, they're close to useless uh, in guiding policy. So again, this this isn't just some right wing talking point to point out that these models, um, you know, it's they're very speculative, and so it's kind of alarming. I would say that they're being used to inform public policy decisions when, you know, this isn't at all like this, the models that let us go land on the moon, for example. This is much more speculative. This is. I guess somewhat of a relate unrelated question, but just in terms of the economic field in general, how has modeling like that, like the view of modeling like that, changed? You mentioned Robert Pendyke, his skepticism about the uh, the IAMs. Um, is, do we see that like in other areas? Uh, sure. So it's if this is where you're going, there there has been lately a sort of pushback against the extreme um, mathematization of economics and it's it's both from the right and the left and ironically um some people might be surprised to hear this 
some of the people who are accused of just pursuing mathematical economic models because of their you know inherent symmetry and elegance rather than being tied to reality are some of the um, the real free market guys like sort of you know coming out of the Chicago school tradition the efficient markets and so and it's guys like Paul Krugman and, and others who have lamented that and said you know let's let's keep things more uh, intuitive and you know it's not not that they're saying let's throw out math models altogether and and so that's you know the, there is there is that element because there's a certain thing where if you if you push it to the extreme and you assume everybody's rational and that markets are always efficient and so forth, it's kind of hard to explain why the business cycles happen. Sure. Okay. And so there, there are things. And so, you know, I, as you guys probably know, I'm, I'm more of an Austrian school economist. And so I, I also think that that extreme mathematization, you know, sort of, sort of went down the, the road of logical absurdity, like taking a, a good idea past the point of, of when it made sense. So to answer your question, yeah, especially after the financial crisis, a lot of economists did soul searching and said, hey, maybe, uh, you know, we were misled by these very precise models that don't really seem to be accurately describing the real world. On the, the economics, state of economics generally, I guess, uh, question for you, how do you view the Pigovian approach as, as such, regardless of the carbon tax question? Okay, so yeah, so this is um, the tradition of A.C. Pagu, who was a you know huge economist in the early 20th century, and yeah, he pioneered what was named in his honor the a Pagovian. It also could be a subsidy, and so the idea is yes, if there's these things either positive externalities or negative externalities, where people are not fully incorporating the cost or benefits that are being showered upon society at large from their economic transactions. Then there's a role for the government to come in and augment it. It's likewise, like if you're a firm engaging in pure scientific research, and, and your scientists discover something, that might benefit society more than just your firm is going to capture because now they can get some new product to market, you know, sooner than your competitors. And so that's why somebody in this tra tradition might say, ah, there's a role for the government to subsidize pure R&D because no private firm is going to fully capture the benefits of that. Okay, so that's that's the spirit. And you know the levy taxes on air pollution, what have you. So one big thing is Ronald Coase famously showed that there's limitations to that that even on its own terms, to impose a Pagovian subsidy or a tax, you're kind of assuming that you know the framework and you know what the optimal response is going to be. So just give a quick example: if there's some factory that's dumping stuff in the river, and there's people who live downstream, and you know that you're imposing harms on them. The standard Pagovian approach is say, oh, let's let's levy a tax on the factory, so now it reduces its output, it dumps less stuff in the river, and so now it's fully taken into account. You know, the, the products it's producing are good for the consumers who use them, but we got to take into account the people living downstream. Well, if you pick the numbers right, it might turn out that maybe the cheaper solution is to pay the people living downstream to move somewhere else, and let the factory just keep you know cranking out output. That might be the, you know, the globally more efficient thing, whereas if you just come in and assume the answer is, ah, we got to make the factory reduce output, then you know, you're building in the, the answer. So there, there's quirks like that where, where Coe showed even on its own terms. Beyond that, I mean, I think history is clear that when you let government officials get a new source of tax revenue, they don't consult economists and say, ah, what's the optimal tax rate here because we're trying to correct negative – no, that it, it's a matter of – 
they want more revenue, and so they're going to use that new source. Just I mean, to look at the the history of the U.S. income tax in the United States, the the rate went up drastically a few years after it was implemented to pay for World War One. And so, you know, if, if people at the time when it was introduced had had any idea of how high it was going to be just a few years later, they would have rejected it. So likewise, I we can sit there and have these nice theoretical discussions about a textbook carbon tax, and I'm happy to do that just to show the limitations of the of the case. But in reality, I think, and we've seen with you know history of carbon taxes in recent history, that governments do not abide by their promises to keep it revenue neutral or and so on. So. I think that's also the Pogovian tax, even on its own terms, you would not, for public choice reasons, trust government officials to abide by that Pogovian framework, even if you thought it was justified. So on that point, um, some people argue that if the receipts from a tar- carbon tax were used to um, to offset taxes on labor and capital, the economic cost of the carbon tax would be like significantly reduced or it might even be negative. What are your thoughts on that? Well, sure. Great. So this is finally at long last. I know the listeners were waiting on the edge of their seat. This is where I'm going to get into the whole, the whole what's called the tax interaction effect. So here again is something where the goalposts of the intervention is they've, they've moved them drastically. All right. Before the standard case, and you still see this, uh, you know, in, in op-eds and so forth, but it's 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 um, fallen away among like the Siri like the actual professional economists and the policy wonks who who know this stuff because they they realize that they have to change their argument or, or adapt it. It used to be just to say, hey, this is a negative externality, and so duh, if we levy a, a carbon tax, then that that makes us better off. You know, this is simple economic one on one, duh. And then um, people pointed out, wait a minute, the, the case is actually not so obvious. If there are pre-existing distortionary taxes then it's it's not as clear what the effects of adding a, a new tax are going to be. And some of the standard early results on this showed you would impose a lower carbon tax once you take this into account. So just to give you an idea of the numbers involved, because this is a big effect, and then I'll try to give the intuition of you know how is this happening, but just so people realize this is a big deal. So if there were um, – if the, if the impact, like the negative externality, let's just stipulate for the sake of argument, were $50 per ton of carbon, so not carbon tax, but, but of carbon, then if you use the revenue as of, and this was the, the U.S. tax code as of the late 1990s, that's when the system came out. Um, it was uh, Bovenberg and, and, uh, and a co-author that, that came up with this. So they said, okay, let's, if in the case where the negative externality is $50 a ton, again, of carbon, and the, the receipts we got from that, the revenue we got from that, we were just going to return in lump sum payments to people. They said the optimal carbon tax would be $0. If instead we use the receipts to reduce personal income taxes, then the optimal carbon tax would be $27 a ton. Okay, so again, they were saying, you know, that if, if there were no tax code, then they would say, oh, the optimal carbon tax would be $50 a ton. But if instead you told me we're going to use the receipts just to reduce lump sum taxes given the other distortions the optimal would be zero if we were going to use it to reduce uh, pre-existing personal income tax rates in a you know revenue neutral fashion then the optimal thing would be 27 which is a little bit more than half so the intuition there to understand why is this happening it's because the idea is if you already have a pre-existing tax code that's distortionary what that means is when you go and work if you generate let's say you know 
$20 of output for your boss or right, for your firm, but then you're being taxed on your wages, maybe you only get $15 of net after-tax pay. So there's this wedge between how much you're actually producing and how much you're getting from it. And so you, you make your labor decisions based on your after-tax income. You know, how much labor do I want to sell given that I'm getting paid $15 an hour? But socially, you're producing $20 of output. And so the tax there is, you know, divorcing your actual output on your, your benefits to society versus your personal payoff. And so you, you work an inefficiently low amount because of the tax. So now, in that context, if you introduce a carbon tax, it makes all the stuff you want to buy more expensive. And so when you think about how many hours of my labor would I have to sell in order to be able to fill my car up with gasoline or to be able to power my house for a year in terms of the electricity, there's now a bigger wedge in between you know, your actions, your labor, and, the, and the, the, the benefits you get from the economy. And so that further distorts your decision on the margin. And so that's, that's the intuition. So the, ironically, it's the other way. Around. A lot of people think, oh, if the tax code is really distorted, then a carbon tax is even better because we can use the revenue to re, you know, reduce some of these other distortionary burdens. And actually, depending on the situation, it, the, the, it goes the other way. So it's a very counterintuitive result. Again, I've written stuff uh, for uh, you know IER on this to, for people who want to read more on it. But th but this is standard in the literature. Like I say, the the proponents of a carbon tax have had to adapt their argument. And so now, basically, it comes down to okay, if we used a huge chunk of the revenue, like over fifty percent of the revenue, to reduce capital taxes, and then the rest to maybe reduce labor taxes, then we could modestly improve you know, the economy as well as have the climate change benefits. But other ways of doing it, that no, it, it would make the economy worse off. And so, again, it's the, the rhetoric there has completely changed. It, it went from this is a win-win, this is a no-brainer, it's a two-for-one deal, to, okay, only on this very particular way of using the receipts is it going to help people. And imagine trying to sell it politically. Say, hey, we're going to make electricity and gasoline more expensive, and we're going to use all the revenue to give big tax cuts to capitalists. Like that, that wouldn't fly at all. Bob, I seem to recall about two years ago you testified before Congress, and, and this came up. Is that right? Yeah, I might I mean it might, it might have been three or something, but yeah, it's okay. I don't remember we'll the exact date. We'll see if we can d dig up that uh, your written testimony, and, and maybe if there's a video, and we'll try to include that in our show notes for people. Yeah. So just to to do more on that whole tax interaction effect. So again, I just want to stress for people, notice that the standard rhetoric says things like, oh, we're going to use the revenue to fund renewable projects and we're going to do you know, this and that. And, the, and they have like, oh, and we're going to have some we're going to give as, a, as compensation to low-income households and maybe some will give to the state. And so the point is you run out of money that even again using their standard and, – and these are not – I'm not like going to the Heritage Foundation looking at their simulations. This is stuff like – you know, resources for the future and, and other organizations that are pro-carbon tax. You know, so th this is not coming from critics who want to defeat it. This is coming from honest researchers who are saying, in order to make sure we don't really hurt economic growth here, we got to use the revenue in this very particular way. Otherwise, it will be, you know, a big impact on, on growth. So they could still be for it. You know, they could say, well, it's, been, it's worth it. You know, we want to make the economy poorer in conventional material terms, but in order to reduce climate change damages. 
But again, but this is not the way it's being sold, especially with the whole alleged conservative case for a carbon tax. A lot of conservative Republicans have been lectured to by a small group, but you know they're very loud <laughs> over the last several years, telling them, "Oh, don't worry, we can." This is basically think of it like a like as a, as a supply side tax cut. You know, we're going to cut cut these other taxes that are onerous. We're going to reduce you know taxes on working and saving and investment, and increase taxes on bad stuff. And I'm saying that intuition, that logic is not correct, or at least there's another consideration you have to bring into the into the fold that generates the opposite outcome. And so if, if people have been just thinking about that, like, oh, we should tax bads, not goods. No, it's actually much more sophisticated and nuanced. And so you really should not think, oh, hey, I'm for a carbon tax because I actually think it's going to give us a, a you know faster economic growth. Plus, hey, maybe Al Gore's right. Like that's that's the way it's been sold to a lot of conservatives. Then I'm saying that is not correct. That does not follow the standard literature. Okay, I've got a couple other questions that haven't come up here in the course of discussion, and I'll just throw them your way and and see what what you can do with them. Um, we've talked primarily in this discussion from the the economic perspective, assessing the models and discussing the the flaws therein. Uh, Bob, do you have any perspective on the argument that there's a property rights infringement entailed in the emission of greenhouse gases and, and that for moral reasons that should be uh, that should be mitigated. This is I'm thinking of Kevin Vallier, um, philosophy professor, and perhaps Jonathan Adler makes that sort of point as well, that this is a property rights issue. There's an infringement that's going on uh, and that should be addressed. Any thoughts? Sure. So that is a very interesting uh, thing to walk through, and I ha I haven't gotten it published yet. But yeah, I, I for a while I had been working on a paper about suppose you had a totally free market, like in the in the tradition of like Murray Rothbard or something, where all the courts and everything were all voluntary market institutions, and suppose the worst fears of the people warning about runaway climate change were correct, right? So that that that's the issue too. Like you know what the the physical facts are what they are. And, you know, what, what if it were the case that there had to be a drastic reduction in greenhouse gas emissions or else really bad things were going to happen soon? How would Earth respond to that? And so that's an interesting theoretical question. But to, to then jump and say, oh, and so that's why the federal government should be doing X, Y, and Z. No, that there, there's a lot more steps in the argument there. So just to, get, to give an example or an analogy, Sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, oh, it's like the tragedy of the commons, right? That it used to be back in the day that in England um, there weren't uh, firm property rights in the, in the land, in the pasture land. And so, you know, one rancher would have his cattle going and others would do it. And so they had no incentive, you know, to, to hold back the, the, the grazing activity. And so the land would be overgrazed. And it was only with the introduction of you know fences and barbed wire and da 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 and a firm assignment of property rights that we solved this so-called tragedy of the commons, and and so they're saying yeah likewise here that's yeah we need we need property rights, okay but notice even on its own terms there, the way that problem was solved was there were legitimate property titles that were eventually you know created and enforced by the common law court system. It was not that the king of England said. You know what? Every year we're going to have 500,000 hectare years of cattle grazing that we're going to issue, and we're going to go walk around and have a whole team of inspectors and enforcement agents. And if your cattle are grazing, we're going to go up to you, and you better present, you know, the, these these permit tickets, 
And oh, by the way, it's going to be a market solution. So you can go ahead and have a, and sell these tickets if, if you uh, have more tickets than you need your cattle to graze and so forth. That's not at all what, what it was. Okay. Or they also didn't have a tax on your cows eating grass, which would be like, you know, the analog of a carbon tax and, or the other one was cap and trade, of course. So I'm saying that what is being proposed as a quote market solution to deal with the fact that we have inadequate definition or enforcement of property rights in other contexts would not at all be construed as a market solution. That would look like central planning. Like what the heck, the King of England or parliament is going to tell us how much our kale can graze each year. That's crazy. That should be decentralized thing. So again, I, I get where they're going with that argument and I'm, I applaud them for at least trying to go that route with it and to try to make it more of a, Hey, this is just really a free market thing. Libertarian should be on board with this, but no, it does not at all follow that a tax De, uh, you know, determined by political officials in Washington, D.C. is somehow a free market outcome. That doesn't follow at all. Okay. Let me throw the next one at, at you, which is it follows very closely with this. Geoengineering as a response to a potential future catastrophe rather than uh, a tax or something of that nature now. Okay. So here, yeah, the, the one I have, um, it's an econ lib article called The Benefits of Procrastination. And so there, that's the, the most detailed I've gone through this. And, and so here, it's funny that you'll see some people, um, I think it was Marty Weitzman, I might be getting my economist mixed, but yeah, I think it was him who was on um, Russ Roberts' show, Econ Talk. And, and so this economist was very much in favor of you know a, a large, well, let's say a carbon tax, I don't know how large you want it to be. And his point, and he was using an analogy, he said, imagine like a, a, a comet's coming towards Earth and it's not gonna hit for many decades or it, it might hit, we're not sure, because you know the position's a little bit fuzzy, but there could be this huge risk that's really gonna threaten you know, the, the very uh, life as we know it on Earth, but not until our grandkids' time. And he was saying, we would be doing all sorts of things. We'd be mobilizing, we'd be studying different techniques about you know, missile technology and da, da 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 And my point is that's what we're doing right now with climate change. There are scientists around the world working on all sorts of different proposals. There's things like genetically modifying trees so that they absorb more carbon. There's proposals like what if we, you know, put iron in the oceans and that would cause algae to bloom and they would absorb more carbon. There's things about, uh, you know, putting up re reflectors in space perhaps or to um, inject you know, soot, like, to, like what happens every time there's a volcanic eruption, the globe gets measurably cooler while all that soot's in the air and so on. So there's all sorts of things people are working on. And the modest point I am making is it's not that that needs that that's the solution. Like in other words, say, oh, well, gee, we can just keep emitting greenhouse gases and we'll just keep pumping up stuff in the air to, to keep sunlight out. Yeah, I can see why people would think that's not really a solution. But the point is, if that is what allows us to postpone, let, let's say that, you know, oh, yeah, the globe does keep warming and people realize, oh, this is going to be a problem. You could buy humanity several more decades of breathing room, as it were, with some of these techniques, okay? And so as it became cheaper, there's, all, you know, people are also working on it to literally suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, okay? And so if that technology, you know, right now that's still too costly, it would, you know, if you were going to do an aggressive campaign to reduce atmospheric concentration of CO2, you wouldn't use that technique. It's too costly, but maybe 40 years from now, that will be relatively cheap, okay? So I'm just saying that all these different techniques are, are in play, and yet, if you go and read the, you know, if you look at like 
Brad DeLong or Paul Krugman and their response to when the, the book Super Freakonomics came out and those guys, those authors went through and just interviewed some of these people talking about these different techniques and different possible ways of dealing with climate change, at least as a temporary stopgap measure so we gain more information, you should just, you know, they bit their heads off. They were like, oh, this is the most irresponsible thing. Because again, they're, they're committed. They know what the answer has to be. They have their, you know, they want aggressive government intervention in the economy. And so anybody working on something that might find a way to do it more cheaply or through, you know, a different technique, they're just denounced as like traitors to humanity. And so this is this is not a scientific discussion. Again, if, if there were a, a comet coming and a group of academics favored one way of dealing with it and other people were investigating other possible ways that might be one percent as expensive. And those other, you know, the first group of scientists were just demonizing and denouncing the other ones as as comet deniers. You, you would be skeptical of this and, and start thinking, this doesn't sound like science to me. This is an open inquiry. And that's what you're seeing here. There's also the possibility, too, that with the carbon tax, I guess, that, you know, the you could expect the fossil fuel industry almost to be the um, be the people who come up with whatever the solution would be to remove carbon from the atmosphere or anything. So by creating a carbon tax, you'd almost be limiting the amount of options um, available for for research into that. Well, right. And so the, the way to, hand, to incorporate what you just said, so yeah, yeah that, that's the exact, you know, perfectly valid point observation. Again, I guess you'd roll that back into Ronald Coase's critique of the Bogovian framework. Remember that example I sure. said that, you know, if you just thought, oh, no, the, the answer has to be levying a tax on the back of it. Maybe it makes more sense to pay the, the people living downstream to move. So now it's an uninhabited thing. L- likewise, yeah. What if instead of because I, I think maybe some of the listeners don't realize the standard estimates of how costly it will be. Even if you impose a modest carbon tax, if you're saying like the, the total impact on global GDP going forward, you know, discounting it at whatever the discount rate we choose, you know, to the president, you know, it's, it's in the trillions of dollars, okay, in terms of how much less goods and services will the globe produce if the governments of the world enacted a uniform, consistent carbon tax and kept it in place for 100 years. And so that's a very big price tag. Again, so if you're thinking, well, yeah, but if we don't do that, the ravages of unrestricted climate change are going to be even worse, then you think it was a price worth paying, and that's why the advocates think it is. But the point is that's, a, that's very expensive. And so, yeah, you're right. Suppose if you know that some new d- development will come along in the year 2055 that allows us to fairly cheaply suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, well, then even if climate change is a serious problem, well, that's you know a very low-cost solution. So – Again, that's that's why the Pagovian framework in this example would be wrong if you didn't have that possibility built in the mind. If you thought the issue is just more or less carbon dioxide emissions and then people have to deal with the consequences, end of story, that's one thing. But if you realize, well, no, there's other ways of possibly dealing with this down the road, then that's you know that's a separate issue. So, so yes, you're you're right that, um, and, and here again, we we just we don't know, and I understand that. Uh, proponents of aggressive government action are going to say, oh, the, the fact that, you know, our ignorance shouldn't be a reason for it to paralyze us. But it's, it's kind of funny that, that that's the case where we are here, where, you know, people say, we, we, why don't we wait before we take really aggressive measures to learn more about this? And then that's somehow construed as, you know, a, a foolish strategy when, you know, in, in most other areas, it's like, no, the, the, like, look before you leap sort of thing and let's, let's analyze more. Because, again, this is... 
it's a big deal when you give government power and give them a, a brand new tax or you give them some new method of intervention. Clearly, we can see from history that governments abuse those those new privileges and new powers. And so that this isn't some you know obscure uh, concern that I'm raising here. This is well documented historically. Sure. And there's always the uh, it seems like there's usually the assumption that, you know, whatever they're doing with the money from the new tax, it's going to go to benefit something. Um, but we know that a lot of times the things the government spends money on are not very good for uh, for people. They, they, right. they could spend it on, you know, you know, a, a war or something. So, um, yeah, it, and it, it's, it's not just a, a, a given that it's going to be. Right. And that's why I stress that it's funny that even on its own terms, like. It, it really has to be a very particular thing in order for the carbon tax to not impose large harms on the conventional economy where, oh, we're going to use all the revenue and 70 percent of it's going to reduce the corporate income tax even further. And we'll give the rest as, uh, you know, a reduction in the payroll tax. And, da, da, da. And, and the point is, you know, that it's kind of silly to be arguing on that framework because we that's not what's going to happen. You can see, for one thing, the proposals they're making. You know, advocates of a large carbon tax, they're not talking about doing all that stuff. People would flip out if they thought, wait, we're going to make energy more expensive for regular people in order to give more tax cuts to rich people. That's the way it would be you know, construed, and that's not politically popular. And also we can look, even places like British Columbia and elsewhere that for a while were the poster child and say, ah, see, there's revenue neutrality. That No, eventually they, they, they've strayed from that, and it's becoming more and more clear that there, it's a net tax increase. And in, the, in terms of U.S. politics, you saw that some of the people originally calling for a revenue-neutral carbon tax after a while were saying, well, no, if we use it to reduce the deficit well, – well, think about that, folks. If you're using a new tax to reduce the deficit, that means it's a net tax increase. That's what it means. right? You're bringing in more revenue. That's why the deficit's lower. So call it for what it is, saying, yeah, we're, we're imposing a massive net new tax on Americans – and so someone trying to convince you that that's what's going to make us richer, like most conservative Republicans know that a huge net tax hike doesn't make people richer. These theoretical discussions are interesting, but why don't we talk about like British Columbia and uh, what we've seen in circumstances where carbon taxes have actually been enacted? Can you talk about those cases? Well, sure. And so I would point people I have. I did a piece on this for um, IER and then also we rolled it into the um, – the, the Cato journal article or policy position paper that I did with um, Pat Michaels and, and Chip Knappenberger, we, we have it in there. So on, on various measures, you know, the British Columbia carbon tax, they were saying how, oh, it didn't hurt the economy. And they were, they were doing things like looking at the unemployment rate in BC versus the rest of the Canadian provinces. But what was funny is that, that in, in showing that after the carbon tax was imposed, there wasn't some huge gap in between them. But if you looked at it before the carbon tax was opposed, the BC unemployment rate was lower. And so that gap disappeared. You see what I'm saying? So it's like sure. things like that. When I was looking at it more carefully, I was really, it wasn't that the proponents were lying, but what they were saying was very misleading. And so actually, there were several lines of evidence to suggest that the carbon tax had hurt the, you know, the BC economy, at least relative to the, to the counterfactual of what else it would have done you know, in the absence of the carbon tax. Um, and beyond that, yes, for, so for a while, they were, you know, they had pledged we're going to be revenue neutral with this thing, and people were pointing to that as the ideal textbook implementation. But then over time, as I say, when you looked at the new budgets and the way they were, it was they were doing things. In other words, they, they weren't just admitting, yeah, we're spending the money on new stuff. 
but it was like things where they were counting and, and trying to show in terms of their accounting, oh, this is how we're using, how we're refunding the, the, the carbon tax receipts to be revenue neutral and to give it back to the citizens. You could see it was funding dividend payments or, or tax re reductions that were already baked into the cake. So in other words, they were just sort of double counting. Things that would have happened anyway, they were now crediting for the uh, the carbon tax receipts as, as paying for, if you get what I'm saying. So it it was the case that even there, the, the single best example that people could point to of, ah, here we finally have people who did the carbon tax right, that, that no, the, the claims of its chief boosters saying, look, it didn't hurt the economy, and the, the politicians are abiding by the pledge for revenue neutrality. Both of those things, when you look at it further, those claims fall apart. And again, that was the best case. You know, we also there's the carbon tax that was in Australia that we we had, uh, covered at IER extensively, where again that you saw a huge spike in electricity prices, and then the voters quickly wanted to, to bring in somebody who was going to get rid of the thing because they they realized, wait a minute, this is not what we were promised. All right, I've got one more random topic for you: dockless electric scooters. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I have never personally enjoyed such a thing, so I, I can't speak from ex experience. My understanding is that something you use? As a coastal elite, uh, yes, I am I am on the dockless scooters daily. Uh, and I think it's, it's, I think it's revolutionizing urban life. Now, when you're riding along them, I hope you're holding a beverage with a straw in it. I'm shooting straws left and right as I do it. <laughs> I, I got to keep people guessing. Don't want them to think yeah. I'm on one team or the other. Yeah. So, so what, I mean, what is interesting here, I probably should say officially is, you know, I personally, or, you know, my professional capacity, certainly IER is in terms of its institutional positions. It's not that we're pro fossil fuel and anti renewables or what have you, or electric. It, it's, we, we, you know, we're for the, the market. We're for voluntary interactions and let consumer choice and, you know, profit and loss signals guide what is produced. And so, yes, if it, if it turned out that, more and more people just because of the different uh, you know, considerations went towards electric scooters. And if 30 years from now, more people are driving electric vehicle, you know, it's not that I, that would offend me personally, if that's the, if that's the market outcome, what I am against is, you know, political factors being involved in sort of forcing that outcome on people. And then on top of that, calling that the, the market outcome when, when no, it's, it was obviously driven by politics. Absolutely. So I think we're getting pretty close to our time. Uh, I'll give you the last word, Dr. Murphy. Uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about when it comes to carbon taxes that you think that we should uh, get in here? So I guess I would just um, caution people that, you know, when, when, when someone is for a very aggressive government policy, either like a very high carbon tax or direct measures restricting coal fired power plants or what have you, and they're saying that, hey, the science is settled and that anybody who disagrees with this is disagreeing with 97% of scientists. And, you know, you have to really question the, the, either the integrity or the intelligence. Of such That is a completely bogus claim. OK, so, for example, that claim about 97% of scientists, what that means is, you know, the, the way they, they calibrate that number is scientists who think that human activity is at least partially responsible for the, the rise in global temperatures since you know, 1750 or what have you, right? That's what that means. So even so-called skeptical scientists like Chip Knappenberger and Pat, Pat Michaels, who I, you know, did co-authored the Cato piece with, they would be lumped in that 97%. Okay. And so that, that's where, where we're coming from here. So don't be misled by that. And as I, as we tried to point out in this podcast, and I work in general on this, 
with these things, I am stipulating all of the results in the IPCC's documents. So I'm not denying any of that. And I'm just pointing out the aggressive policy measures do not follow from these stipulated results. And so there's a lot more to the argument to just say, hey, I think, you know, I think the globe is getting warmer. Therefore, we need an aggressive carbon tax. No, there's a lot more steps in the argument there. And so I just encourage people, don't be bamboozled or intimidated by people trying to bully you into that position and making you think you're being unscientific if you just say, wait a minute, you haven't really made that case very clearly yet. You're involved, you got a lot of other endeavors. Uh, anything you want to fill our listeners in on that you're doing outside of energy policy work right now? Well, with the uh, at the Free Market Institute of Texas Tech, I'm doing a lot of work on monetary and banking policy, more at the theoretical end, but just in terms of looking at how does the government affect the business cycle. And uh, for a, a, a fun weekly podcast, I guess I would point people to the one I do with Tom Woods called Contra Krugman, where every week we take an op-ed from Paul Krugman and if, if we sometimes we agree with them, but usually we don't. And the point there is to teach standard economics in a in a fun way. Great, thank you. Our guest today has been Robert Murphy. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you for listening to the Plugged In podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please take the time to rate and review us. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org.